You are tuned in to the Jackson Hole Connection, sharing fascinating stories of people connected to Jackson Hole. I am truly grateful for each of you for tuning in today. Support for this podcast comes from Teton County Solid Waste and Recycling is reminding businesses of the Curb to Compost program, which allows businesses, restaurants to have food waste collection. And this is an important next step in your business's or restaurant's recycling program. The Jackson Hole Wine Club, making the experience of exploring new wines as easy as taking a sip. Visit jacksonholewineclub.com to sign up today. Folks, I enjoy reading and learning from others, which guides me to share a quote because for me, reading helps me learn, helps me be exposed to new ideas that I can apply to my life in my personal life, but also my business life as well. So today's quote is, it's easy to say, it's not my child, not my community, not my problem. Then there are those who see the need and respond. I consider those people my heroes. And folks, that's from Fred Rogers. That's right, Mr. Rogers, the person we grew to love and saw for many years. Today is episode 191. You will hear from Jim Williams. Jim is going to share his story of exploring the world. Jim started at an early age with a curious mind, which led him to explore the area where he lived. And as Jim learned more about his area, he expanded his area of exploration and that passion of exploration and adventure grew. Once Jim realized with the help of his mother, we all, we all receive so much help and good thoughts from our moms. Jim realized what his profession should be. And you know what folks, at that moment, that's when Jim and his life really took a turn in the right direction and it took off to guide others to explore the world. Everybody listening can Google Jim to discover what he has accomplished in the world of guiding and exploring. But what's great about today is to sit down with Jim and you can hear his story. Jim shares with you the timeline of his life of what he accomplished and how he gained experience to become a superb explorer and world-known guy. Thank you for joining me this morning at the Jackson Hole Connection. Uh, you're welcome. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, as you being an explorer, we have lots to cover today about your life and the adventures that you have been on. But we all start someplace. I'm curious to learn where you were born and raised and how did you land here in Jackson? Well, I was born in Shreveport, Louisiana, but I, to be honest, have no recollection of living there. Obviously, I lived there for at least two years because my sister was also born there. And then I'm told we moved to Shreveport, from Shreveport to uh, Schenectady, New York, or my father worked for General Electric. I have no memory of that either. Um, <laughs> and then we moved to California, the South Bay area, Saratoga, California. And we lived there for several years. Then we lived in two places, finally owned a house. And then in the early 60s, we moved back to the East Coast because my father worked internationally and we lived on the West Coast when he was working in Japan, and we worked on, lived on the East Coast when he was working in India. So then we moved back to the East Coast, and we spent three or four years there, and we moved back to California, where I basically spent the rest of the time until I graduated from high school. Okay. About that time, a year or so after that. And so I grew up, or I spent my formative childhood years in California, the South Bay area, Saratoga, California, and went to Saratoga High School, did those kind of things. And 
while I, when I was a uh, kid, I got involved in a program that was science-based, sort of one of the early programs that would be akin to Teton Science School, but much more open format than the science school and the modern experiential learning. It was experiential learning. It was science-based programs all over California and actually all over the West. And we did, in the summers, we did things we called scamps, which were science camps. Hmm. And they were 10 days to two week long backpacking trips in the mountains. And we probably, in the Sierras and the Coast Range. And we probably, you know, we did those. And it was kid, it was age appropriate. So you didn't have little kids and big kids, but that introduced me to being outdoors, being in the mountains. My family was outdoors. My mother didn't believe that you needed to have a television. She didn't believe in television. In fact, it wasn't until I was in high school that we actually got a television in our house. If she heard of a program that needed to be watched that was on TV or school said needed to be watched, we go over to somebody's house who had a television. <laughs> but then my great-grandmother, great somebody, died and left us a television, which she begrudgingly transferred to the house, but promptly put it between behind lock and key. So you couldn't watch it just randomly because she believed in California being nice. She believed that you needed to be outdoors if you had spare time. If you were doing schoolwork's one thing, but if you were, if you could be outdoors. So spent a lot of time going up, climbing trees and running around. I didn't play a lot of sports per se. I tried my hand at baseball and I tried my hand at soccer, tried my hand at basketball. I was tall, so they used to uh, put me in as a center. And then as soon as I did the jump, then they would take me out again. But that was about it. But I enjoyed doing things outside. I enjoyed, you know, climbing trees. I enjoyed sledding in the East Coast. I enjoyed riding my bike and early, early mountain biking because they don't, they didn't make mountain bikes at that time. I just took regular old street bikes and rode them in the woods. But anyway, and then when I was about 10, 11 years old, I got introduced to climbing. And I'll say that if there was you know, something, even though it, at the time it didn't seem that way, uh, a pivotal moment, it was probably that introduction to climbing, rock climbing. And some older kids, they're only a year older than I, I was, but they were 12, 13 years old, right? They had started rock climbing. One of the guys was a little bit older. And, uh, and I went up and they were rappelling off this face, which turns out is only about 60 feet high, but it seemed like it was thousands mm. of feet in the air. And I went up there, I crawled up there and came down where they were and said, I want to do that. And they're like, yeah, okay. And I got off the edge and I was in tears. Man, it was the most frightening thing I mm. did, but I did it. And then the guy who was the leader and the inspiration for this whole outside program, we were on a backpacking trip in the Los Padres National Forest. He said, well, you know, rappelling is fine, but you need to learn to rock climb. You need to actually learn to belay and climb and tie knots and do all that stuff. So they put together a rock climbing class the next day. And the woman that was... Um, with me who was helping him teach the class who had been there when I had been uh, repelling. She uh, was there and she was belaying me and I climbed up this little climb. And, you know, those days there was a filled thing. So it was, you know, on the belay on, ready to climb when ready, climb, climbing, climb away, you know, long dialogue that you had to go through to start climbing. So I climbed up the thing then I got up to the top of it and I was in my red wing boots and high top lace up boots and 
I got to the top and they said, so what do you say now? And I said, I, I didn't know. And I said, thank you. <laughs> and they said, well, thank you works, but off belay anyway. So that was the start of it. <laughs> that was the start of climbing for me. And then the other guys that were with me were closer to my age. And I started reaching out to learn about climbing and my folks were, they probably weren't overly excited about me climbing, but they were willing to let me, to let me take lessons. So I, I took climbing lessons, you know, I went on a variety of different projects and I researched it and I had to have climbing gear. So I joined the co-op REI uh, now in Jackson, but I have a, a three or four digit uh, membership number. No way. Uh, yeah, that they don't, everybody's like, what's this? I'm like, that's my original membership card. Well, that number doesn't work anymore. I go, well, that's the only number I got. So anyway, <laughs> what were you, a founding member? No, I was just a kid. But anyway, I started doing as much climbing as I could. And it and I would, and so this would have been, you know, through junior high and junior high pushing towards high school. And, you know, we did cross-country skiing. We did what effectively now is alpine touring but we did it in those days because we our skis had cable bindings on them right so you just put a uh, bear trap on the front and you loosen the cable and you walked in those things and you know we walked out from badger pass to glacier point and helped push off the firefall when that still existed in the winter you know it's a 12 mile walk but when you're 12 miles and you know in those days that was a pretty major effort walked out came back did those kinds of trips used to do got more into cross-country skiing as time went back went on classic skiing and climbing into the backcountry and telemarking, even though it was on wooden skis anyway. And, but then the guy that ran that program, I was working as a junior guide, probably by the time I was 12. And by the time I was 13, he hired me to teach rock climbing to high school kids, 15 years and, and up or 14 years and up, whatever. And uh, I came to him and I said, yeah, his name is Larry. I said, Larry, you, you know, you hired me 13 years or I'm going to be 13 years old. And I, you're hiring me to teach these, you know, 14 year olds and up or 15 year olds and they're older than I am. And he goes, well, so who's going to tell them? And I said, well, <laughs> are you? And I said, no, I'm not going to tell them. And. And he said, well, neither am I. So we just went from there and I started teaching that. And then I went out oh, to Oregon, did learn to ice climb. I did a mountain medicine seminar years of 14, 15 year old kid in a, in a course that's designed for doctors and medical people. But I was doing my best. I mean, no, I my biology, I knew what would be body and I knew I'd studied about what there was to study about that and avalanche and ice climbing and that kind of thing. And so I continued to teach in the high school and on the outdoor program, I eventually got to teaching for the University of California, Santa Cruz, and we continued to do backpacking, cross-country skiing, and I'd started teaching mountaineering on our backpacking trips, and then went to work for University of California, Santa Cruz as a guest lecturer in the summer on an extension program that was basically a month of backpacking in the Sierras with mm -hmm. some good mountaineering up high. Now, that was kind of my, that was my start of that type of thing. In those days, you could hitchhike anywhere. So, I mean, I even hitchhiked from junior high on. I didn't like to ride the bus, so I would run across the highway and go to the street that led down to the school and just hitchhike to the school, which was maybe two miles away. But anyway, I'd hitchhike almost every day. I hitchhiked to high school until I got a, a car 
Uh, that was father was smart enough not to get me a car that could drive to any of the climbing sites. He got me a 1929 Model A Roadster pickup. And it didn't go but about 35, 40 miles an hour and top speed and had a soft top. So you got wet if it was raining and it uh, was great on dates, I'll tell you. But anyway, I would I'd drive out to high school when, and then I sort of stopped um, hitchhiking quite as much. But I'd still drive it back to town, then hitch up to, hitchhike up to the rock climbing areas, go bouldering almost every day after school. And then I migrated to Yosemite where I spent time working with Yosemite Mountaineering School, teaching rock climbing kids programs, mostly because I was still a high school kid. And then- Hey, Jim, when you started teaching at Yosemite Mountaineering and you were in high school, what what year was that roundabout? Uh, I graduated from high school in 72. So you can just before that, you know, 70, 71, somewhere in there, probably 71. So you're making quite a name for yourself in high school, these organizations letting you teach, teach for them. Well, you got to recognize that I was nearly six feet tall. By the time I was, when I started teaching rock climbing at 13, I already had a little goatee. And by the huh. time I was 15, I had a full beard. So, I mean, people didn't know how old I was. It wasn't an issue of that. It was you know, could you rock climb? And in those days, that was prior to um, present style of rock climbing. So we were still hammering pitons and hanging on for dear life. <laughs> and, and then I guess it was probably right about there. So 14 would have been about uh, 15 years old because I didn't have a driver's license, but I had a permit because I drove up with my folks. My folks sent me to, or allowed me to go to a climbing school that was run by then an extremely famous um, rock climber, a guy by the name of Royal Robbins. And he was a contemporary of Chenard's, Yvonne Chenard's who owns Patagonia, and Royal and him were kind of, they, I would say they were somewhat rivals, but anyway, Royal put together and wrote a book called Rockcraft and Advanced Rockcraft. And he put together a 10 day climbing school, which was a rock climbing program for a full 10 days. And he hired pretty much the top Yosemite rock climbers and, at the time. And I, you know, it's, it made a huge impression on me of those people. It was Royal, and then there was a guy named Dick Herb who kind of dropped out of sight for a while. Then there was Kim Schmitz, and then there was Jim Bridwell, and then there was Mike Covington, and then there was Dick Dorworth. I believe that was it. Anyway, those were the instructors. So it was almost one-on-one -on -one instructors for guides. And yeah, this is hippie days, you know. We were hanging out at a rock climbing area outside of Lake Tahoe and going climbing and, you know, sort of hanging out and sleeping and sleeping bags on the ground and that kind of thing. And from there, I got invited by Bridwell to go to Yosemite. And then I hung out with him for a couple of weeks there and I'm hanging out in Yosemite and my I'd spent literally all the money, spending money my folks had given me on climbing gear. And I hitchhiked over to Yosemite and I was hanging out there eating rolled oats, brewers, yeast, and honey, and rolled oats out of a bag that you'd feed horses. But anyway, um, <laughs> but my folks are like, well, why don't you come home? And I'm like, well, I don't, I'll have to hitchhike home. Oh, my mother's fine. They say, I'll send up some money. So you can get a bus ticket. And I'm like, okay. So I got a bus ticket to Modesto where Royal had a climbing shop. And I took the balance, went in and bought more climbing gear. And then that was only an hour, two hours from my house. So then I hitchhiked home. And as I got out at the corner, my mother was sitting there and she goes, I figured you'd do that. <laughs> anyway, she didn't stop me. Years and years later, she said, you you know, don't expect I, your brothers or sisters to be like you 
they aren't. But she let me go through that. Mm -hmm. And then I was climbing that summer after high school, and I got accepted to a college up in Billings, Montana called Rocky Mountain College. And you know, the name said Rocky Mountain College, and the brochure showed the Beartooth Mountains. I thought, oh, this will be cool. I'd been out to the Tetons a couple of times backpacking. I tell my funny Teton story. I was probably, I don't know, 15, 16 years old, probably. And we were, you know, we didn't need no stinking guide. We could go climb on our own. We knew how to climb. Uh, another guy and I got our act together and got our bag and walked up the trail towards the Grand Teton and got up to some lakes and kept climbing towards the Grand Teton and got to the top of Disappointment Peak and went, oh, we can't get there from here. Hmm. And so the next year we came back and we hired Exum. And at that time, Willie Unsold and others was uh, of Everest fame was working at Exum. So Willie took us up and we, Chuck Pratt, who I knew from Yosemite and Willie were all working. And so I, we were, by then we were enamored by the names and the people. So then we climbed the Grand and then Quite a few years later, I came back to work at Exum, and I worked with Kim Schmitz, Jim Bridwell, and Dick Dorworth, and I was a lead guide for Mike Covington in Alaska. So all of the, that I had as a kid kind of came back around, and I, I was able to join in that group of people that I felt were really special and always kept as mentors. So kind of sidetracked, but I went to Billings. I got there, thought, oh my God, there's no mountains here. They're 60 miles away. Anyway, found a climbing or, uh, company, a guiding company, a little store. And I joined those guys and we started a retail business and I went to school in geology and I continued to guide through that in the Beartooth and climb in the Beartooth, teach climbing, teach skiing, cross-country skiing, downhill skiing at Red Lodge, and um, continued till I graduated in 77, climbing in Canada, all over the U.S. and the world in general. And then shortly after, I worked for a while as a geologist in the Beartooth and Stillwater, and then I went from there to graduate school at Arizona, in Arizona, studied permafrost. My interest was China. I studied permafrost on the Tibetan Plateau. And then that was over in about 81, I became co-leader of an expedition to climb an unclimbed peak in China. And it was pretty significant. And it was at the time a well-funded expedition and it lasted two months, local filmmaker from Jackson, Peter Palafian, was along to do a film of, the, of it, but that film never happened. But anyway, we climbed a, a peak in Sichuan, China, it had never been climbed before. And it was a pretty, well, it was a climb we did, another fellow and I, Alpine style, 2000 meter face that was probably 70 degrees ice face, basically. So we did it. It was a really epic climb. We thought we would take six days. It took us 10 days. And we had an avalanche on the second to the last day that took away our stove and our food and our backpack and sleeping bag. We had a tent and one sleeping bag between two of us and some gear. And this is an unclimbed peak. You know, remember that. So we then draw or an unclimbed face on the peak. Some of the other guys on the expedition, we didn't know this had actually reached the summit before us. But anyway, we never went to the actual summit because of this avalanche. And so we descended onto the east side, which had still, again, an unclimbed peak, never even been explored that we knew of. And we climbed back around underneath the north face and back to base camp. And that was a pretty much a 36 hour push that we did. No, we had a couple of granola bars because the sponsor 
was Quaker, and they were coming out with the chewy granola bar at that huh. point. And so we were supposed to do ads for them on the chewy granola bar, and I can still remember I was – no, they were filming. Peter was filming. Was it going to be an ad for Chewy Granola? At least they thought it was. They didn't really understand climbers very well. But anyway, so the first thing they said to me was, hey, you know, I'm like, well, what do you want me to say? And they're like, well, say whatever comes to mind. And I said, okay. And I said, it's, I took a bite of it and I said, hmm, not bad. They're like, stop. No, not bad. Doesn't work. So, they handed me the storyboard and it read, and I can still remember it. It says, uh, moist and chewy, unexpectedly delicious, Quaker chewy granola bar. So we said those lines all over the place, huh. tried to make uh, little videos of those. Well, it was useless, but anyway. But we had some to eat, so we ate them. And we climbed for 36 hours. We had the two ropes and a few pieces of gear, and that was it. We made it back to camp, to base camp. And when we arrived, they were beginning to have a memorial service because they hadn't seen us for three days. Oh, no. And they were having a memorial service for, the, for two missing climbers that nobody knew where they were. So we walked in, and they were like, Wow. You're here. And then they, anyway, then we left the next morning, went back across China. And so that was my first climbing expedition in China. And uh, then just to shorten up the story a little bit, but then I was at home after this expedition. And after I'd finished, I was the co-leader with Fred Becky and infamous American climber. And, and then... A number of people from Bozeman, Rob Hart, who started Crazy Creek Chairs, and Pat Callis, who was a very prolific climber in Bozeman, and Dougal McCarty, and a number of other guys. I came back and I finished all the sponsor obligations of photos and all that. And then I was looking for a job. I was a geologist, you know. I, needed to have a job. So I'm sitting there at the dining room table, filling out job applications. And my mother came in and she goes, and she was a pretty savvy person. And she said, what are you doing? And I said, I'm filling out job applications and try to get a job as a geologist. And she said, doesn't look like you're having much luck. And I said, well, no, I'm not. And she goes, so what do you like to do? Oh, well, you know, I like to go climbing and I like to go skiing and I like to teach and I like to guide and I like to travel. And she goes, so why aren't you doing it? Mm. And, and I'm like, well, because I thought I was supposed to be a geologist. That's what you go to school for. Right? It sent me to school. You guys spent all this money, sent me to college and the graduate school and all this. And I thought that's where, what I needed to do. And she said, well, why don't you go do what you like to do colleges just to teach you how to do that? Hmm. And I said, okay. And so then I went out and within a year or so I had work in particular for a company that was in called mountain travel. I had almost 300 days a year of work between here in the Tetons and or here in Jackson including, you know, the ski area and excellent mountain guides. I had about 300 days a year of work and mountain travel. And those three kept me really busy. And so Jackson was a nice place because summertime, oh, the global travel in the summer, Europe pretty much had its own guides. And so to guide in the places where I had expertise, which was Asia and some South America was seasonally was spring and autumn. So I would go back and forth and then I'd come back here and I'd go to Denali. And then after Denali, I'd come down here to the Tetons, guide for a full summer in the Tetons and then leave again in September and go to Asia or wherever and then go from there, come back here and work at the village for, for Pepe at the time. As a guy, as a ski guy, 
what's now are called backcountry guides, but at that time we didn't have that much backcountry and access, so we couldn't we didn't couldn't go out almost every day. It wasn't open gates. It had to sign out and the patrol had to let you sign out anyway. I worked for them and I worked for Pepe to be from about eighty three to ninety seven. And then I quit working with them for a short time and moved and went to working in South America for Aconcagua and then guiding backcountry skiing in the Tetons in the mid-90s through to early 2000s. Then I went back to work as an instructor for the village in about 2004, where I still teach. That's a remarkable history there, Jim. There's other There's... points in there that I haven't even filled in. Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> and and we're going to get to a few specific stories that are, I want you to share. But I, I love what your mom said to you. Go out and do what you enjoy. College was to teach you how to find that and how to be responsible. But go enjoy what you want to. A large number of people who would say I was fairly irresponsible, but anyway, I, I, I survived my irresponsible days and managed to get on from there. So Jim, we're going to take a quick break to get a word from one of our sponsors, and then we will be right back. Teton County Solid Waste and Recycling estimates that approximately 3,954 tons of food waste are disposed in the trash right here in Teton County every year. This makes food waste the next frontier material in the quest to achieve our county's goal to reduce waste and recycle more, which will help us aim for zero waste. For more information on Teton County Integrated Solid Waste and Recycling's Curb to Compost Commercial Food Waste Program, visit tetoncountywy.gov slash recycle and join today. Jim, welcome back. I'm so enjoying your story. And what I gather is you started coming out here as a teenager to climb with friends and, you know, just over time through you following your passion of being a guide, a teacher in the mountains, skiing, climbing, you naturally set some roots to, to end up living here in Jackson over the years. Certainly introduced me to a place that ended up being home for sure. Yeah. I, mean, I, I thought of, you know, moving back up to Billings, Montana, but the growth potential, the, the sort of. Oh, what seemed like an you know intellectual expanse and like was here more so than up there. And people here had a little bit more global view of things. At that time we had like you know winter and summer, and then the off seasons were real, and I was gone. And we had an airport, right? So I could get in and out of here quite easily. So that was you know it made for perfect in and out, and then than living here in the in between. That's kind of, I ended up here, but I ended up here was actually a conscious choice because it's like, okay, where do I live? I would go up to Montana and work cattle ranches for a few years just to get some money. And then I'd come back here and I had began to have roots here between climbing and skiing. And then from there, you know, just developed a greater roots in the picture. And so, then I actually, in the beginning, had a business called um, Professional Mountain Guides and Cultural Expeditions and ran those. And by then I had mountain travel, had sold. It was becoming what's now MT Sobek. It was in its, its changing. And that, for me, I was the China operations manager for mountain travel in China from about 83 to from just around 90, 91. Then I was done, that sold, and lots of things changed. So I moved on and I did my own businesses, two of them. One was professional mountain guides, which was climbing, and then cultural expeditions, which were trips that had a little cult, stronger cultural bent to them, but they're small group exploratory things with an educational component. Even the climbing has the, that. Then 
I was fortunate in, uh, oh, well, 1987 or so, I was working for Mountain Travel, and um, the head of Mountain Travel, a friend of mine named Leo Laban, said, hey, you know, we're starting to put together climbing in the Antarctic. You know, would you be interested in going and working with those guys in the Antarctic and climbing Mount Vincent. In those days, we flew across the Drake Passage, refueling so we could take four people plus the pilot and then your gear. And then it was the rest was filled with fuel that you hand pumped into the wings as you flew across the Drake, the Drake Passage. Oh. Uh, and that, that aircraft will hold 12 to 16 people at this point without all that stuff in there. But anyway, working for them at the time was a guy who lives here also, Lanny Johnson, was a PA here in town for years. And Lanny and I worked and I ran the China stuff and Lanny did some guiding. He was a Canadian certified guide. And after the Antarctic season or so, Leo came to me and said, look, we're trying to put together a crossing of the Antarctic continent from the base of the peninsula. And originally it was a very grand scheme, which was to take a boat across the Drake Passage, get off on the sea ice, do a Shackleton-esque type thing, get off on the sea ice, cross the sea ice, have a resupply point on the coastline, and then ski the last, whatever, 900 miles to the South Pole. But as the reality developed and and all we be we realized that was really a huge that might even require wintering over nobody was very keen on dark and really cold weather then <laughs> we opted and we were able to help develop the first blue ice runways that allowed wheeled aircraft to land on the continent without a dirt strip but an ice strip and that has been a huge success. In fact, even today, I mean, they, they fly a 757 down there and with passengers on it, landed on the ice. They fly the Aleutian, big overwing for a supply jet down there, landed on the ice. You can have very long ice runways that are well-maintained and on the planes land. Now you don't touch the brakes, hmm. you know, you land at 250 miles an hour and you've got to, you got to land differently, but the pilots that know that know how, how that works. Anyway, we put that together. We landed the Austral summer before we started. Then in 88, we had been able to get uh, a group together to go to the South Pole. Now we had hoped to have a lot more people, but we ended up with our crew and the most significant thing to me was that at the time we left for the South Pole, there had only been 11 people reach the South Pole on foot, all from the New Zealand side along the same route, the route that Scott and Amundsen and the footsteps of Scott followed. And uh, of those uh, 11 people, six had, all right, yeah, six had returned alive. The other five had all perished. Scott's expedition perished on the ice. You know, the odds were not in our favor, <laughs> if you will. Now, we took 11 people to the South Pole. Now, we had a lot more in support than Scott or any of those guys had, for that matter. But we had orchestrated. We had an aircraft on the ice. and We had a base camp that was maintained by the pilot and a doctor. And we had, at times, we had two aircraft on the ice, and they were, they'd really up the climbing of Vincent, uh, see for the highest point in the Antarctic, climbing that. Anyway, so we flew all of our people, and it was an international expedition. It had Americans. It had the first women. It had a fellow from India, a guy from Chile, people from the UK, people from Canada, and of course, the Americans and the oldest American. Anyway, when you're the first person, there's a lot of things that can be first. But anyway, um, 
So then we flew out, we flew onto the ice, we flew out to the coast, and then we started skiing. And we skied as a shakedown from the coast back to the base, and then we skied on from the base to the pole. And the total was about 1,500 kilometers, which is approximately 900 miles, Jeez. which is about the same as skiing from here to San Francisco just to keep an idea. And it took us actually 50 days of skiing and 45 days of actual skiing, 50 days of the trip. And we found that after 10 days travel, we began to lose our steam. So we needed a rest day. And we were able to get those rest days. And on some of them, we got a resupply of our food and fuel and everything. So our trip was supported. But it's important to note, first, it was the first crossing, and second is, it was prior to the existence of a GPS or satellite phones. So we were navigating via the sun, because that was the only star we could see, and then we were staying in communication on a radio, uh, and the ultra low frequency radio bounces off the stratosphere and who knows where it lands. But anyway, so we continued the South Pole. We got everybody to the South Pole on the trip. And so then that was a big deal. We had to make sure nobody could claim going first. So we got to the South Pole marker and made everybody put their right hand one on top of the other. And then person that was on the bottom was last and person was on top got to put their hand on next. And anyway, we put both hands on. So everybody got there at the same time. Mm -hmm. But uh, we had the first person from India. We had the first two women to ever reach the South Pole on foot, and they were both Americans. We had, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, Tori Murden, who's now the president of a college, and don't remember the name of it, but anyway, Tori Murden and Shirley Metz. And Shirley and her husband had been the financing behind Hobie Sport, Hobie Cat, okay. all that in the early days, and they'd sold Hobie, and, and then, Colonel Bajaj was the Indian guy. And then and we had a guy from Minneapolis, Joe Murphy, who had been president of the American Alpine Club at one time, I believe. And we had two, three others. Then we had a guy from Chile. And then we had one of the navigators was from the UK and the other was from Canada. They were also snowmobile drivers at times. We had a guy from Chile, and then we had a pilot and a doctor who stayed at base camp the entire time, but they were part of the team. Without them, we would have been in a world of hurt. Mm -hmm. um, and we had two physical resupplies and one cash along the way in order to have enough fuel and enough food and also to get rid of our waste because we carried with us all of our human waste, be it gray water or virtually anything. And, and it all froze, so it didn't stink. Hmm. It, uh, and anyway, so we reached the South Pole. We flew back from the South Pole, stopping midway to refuel and got stuck there for a week and then flew back to the the base and then the aircraft came in and picked us up and flew us back to the mainland and then we were you know we were done that was the end of january so we started thanksgiving into january uh, a couple of years after that i i guided a crossing of the of the patagonian ice cap and then in the beginning of about, well, in 2000, we had a, a huge cleanup expedition to Mount Everest. I had started guiding Mount Everest in about 1994. So in 99, we'd done a medical research project there. In 2000, I was the climbing leader for an expedition that was 
supposed to be doing a huge cleanup, and we did do a huge cleanup. We cleaned up a ton of of waste, and I, I can't remember how many, but I'm going to 700 or so plus oxygen bottles off the mountain, and we carried trash down. We made trash into a commodity so that people got paid to carry it down the mountain by weight anyway. So we did that. We summited that Everest 27th of May, and then came back, eventually got back to the U.S., flew straight to Alaska, climbed with a private client to the summit of Denali a couple of weeks, and then came back down, and then came back to Axum, spent the summer in, at Axum and guiding. And right near the end, I had a couple came, and they were like, hey, you know, we'd like to go climb Kilimanjaro. So I was like, oh, okay, you want to go in September? I said, sure. <laughs> so I said, okay, let's go. So we, another friend, a woman who had been climbing Everest with me and had finally succeeded, she joined us. And then, so we climbed Kilimanjaro. And then on our way home, we met another woman from here in Jackson, Kay Wilson. And we flew over to Russia and went down to Elbrus, climbed Elbrus, came back to the U.S. after that. And then I went and guided a trek to the base of Kanchenjunga in, on the Nepal-Indian border. Kanchenjunga is the third highest mountain in the world. And then we went from, we didn't climb it, but we went to the base camp, came back. And then I flew from there over to Australia. And the U.S. Olympic team was, well, the Olympics had just ended. This is in 2000. And the Paralympics, or my cousin and her husband were part of the Paralympic team. And she was the coach of the American quadriplegic rugby team. So we took some of those guys and her husband, who was a marathon, wheelchair marathon racer, and tried to climb to the top of... Uh, Osiusko in Australia, which is the highest point in Australia. Those guys, none of them could get up the last bit because it was too steep and covered in snow, and it was just too much to haul them up there. But anyway, some of the crew, support crew and all, got to some of the Kosciusko, and then we got back down. Then we, then I flew on from there to Argentina, went down to Ushuaia, got on a boat, because this was a pre, you know, this is something I had planned. And by now I was like, huh, I might be able to get all the seven summits in here, you know? And so then I went and we got on a boat in Ushuaia and we went across to South Georgia Island, and um, which is in the Antarctic Convergence. So it's considered Antarctica. And it's the island that Shackleton came to after he had left his crew and they were in an open boat, they sailed 750 miles across. They came in on the windward side and realized they couldn't probably sail around and get to the leeward side. So they left the boat there at Peggotty Point and they crossed on foot across the mountains and glaciers and came down in Stromness Bay, which is where the the whaling station was where they had left about a year and a half earlier. And they crossed over. And so we followed their route. Yeah. And, and it may have been the first commercially run crossing of the route. And so we had, I believe we had, I don't remember, well, 40 people maybe. And we crossed over and then we came down into the bay where they, as the story goes, came down. People were like, who are you? Where'd you come from? They said who they were, and they're like, whoa, mm. how'd you get here? You know. Anyway, short of it was they then went back and went and rescued the rest of the crew. Nobody died that was on that boat at that time. So the Shackleton was credited with having good leadership skills and likes. Anyway, then we went from there. I did a little personal trip to Patagonia, then I went 
and flew down to the Antarctic, guided Vincent Massif with a crew, came back from that just before Christmas, went home to spend Christmas with my family, came back a couple of days after Christmas to guide another really supposedly high-powered group of guys who wanted to climb Aconcagua. What reasons? I don't fully understand, but anyway, they were heads of big corporations. And originally it was all orchestrated. Everybody was going to fly in by helicopter, but reality was that doesn't really work. So walking is still the best way. So um, yeah, we, we got everybody in and we got up on the mountain and we got at the high camp and the winds as they can be on Aconcagua at especially at the end of December, early January, were just horrendous enough. I had a guy who was at the time head of Northwest Airlines, and he said, you know, my airplanes don't wait for weather. And I was like, yeah, well, I've been on a few of them, and they do wait for weather. <laughs> but if you'd like to go outside and stand in the wind for about 20 minutes, and then come back in and tell me whether or not you want to go for the summit, I'll let you. But recognize that we're going to go up about 3,000 vertical feet, and it's only going to get windier and colder. So he went out and stood out there for about five minutes and came back and goes, I'm going down. I'm going home. Anyway, we stayed. We tried. We never did get a break in the weather, and we went home. And I then found another expedition that I could lead, and I guided another climb of Aconcagua and had maybe the prettiest climb of Aconcagua that I may have ever had. And that had two people from Jack who live in Jackson now, Tim Sia Carlin and a woman called, I think her name, Mills Halpin. She's now Mills Halpin. Mm -hmm. Mills went on to climb other things with me over the next few years. She climbed Denali and she climbed Everest. And so, anyway. So, then they came back. That was just around eight months. So, at the time, it was I was the first person to hit the highest points on each of the seven continents in less than a year. So, you can count the days, but I don't. Jim, so. how did your body feel reaching all of that altitude? within a year, because if I have read and studied all this, I mean, just for some people to recover from Everest can take months from that altitude alone. Well, I was probably at some of the fittest that I could have been, and I, it didn't bother me at all. Okay. It was, you know, you know, then I had some true family setbacks and some deaths in my family shortly thereafter. So the next couple of years, I didn't go back to Mount Everest. Mm -hmm. Then I started going back in about 2004 until 2014. For then, I probably went every other year for maybe 20, 25 years. I went every other year. And then in 2014, we were there and the that was when the avalanche killed a whole bunch of Sherpas. Mm -hmm. And that was a year before the earthquake, but it was a year uh, that claimed the lives of a number of Sherpas that worked for us. And really, I haven't gone back to guide that after that. I didn't lose any Sherpas on my team. I was very fortunate. And all of my guys came back and went home and didn't come back to work. We've, you know all done our own things still friends but we're not necessarily climbing the highest mountain in the world any longer well that's all right you've done it yeah i've done it and i've done it multiple times in terms of having been there and guided successful expeditions mm -hmm. but the thing that's critical to all of this is all of this is guiding Right. There's not a single one of these things that I've described that I did for my exclu exclusively for myself. I did them for as a guide, mm -hmm. always with people in tow. And now I'm still doing this. I did Kilimanjaro twice in the last six months, nine months now, and I've got a trip to 
the Galapagos and then got a trip to Iceland and I have a trip to oh, Nepal in the autumn. And just to give myself a plug, I have a business in Jackson, which has been there for almost 20 years now. Uh, it's What's now the name of your business, Jim? Explored Us. And you've been yeah. operating this business for 20 years now. Yeah, 22 now, apparently. 22 Paperwork says I started it in 2000. And before that, it was Professional Mountain Guides and Cultural Expeditions. But we we got rid of that name and brought it all under Explored Us in an effort to explore remote wilderness areas around the world. That's spectacular. And since you're still running trips and guiding people, how do people get in touch with you if they are interested in you putting together a trip for them? Well, they can reach out to the website, which is exploredus.com. They can contact me via email, mm -hmm. which is jim at exploredus. Or find somebody like you and ask you how to get in touch with me. Because <laughs> uh, you're overly connected. <laughs> I have a feeling that somebody, if they can't find exploratus.com or find Jim at exploratus.com, they'll probably do the Google and find you that way. If, um, you, put, if you put in Jim Williams um, Mountain Guide, you mm -hmm. it will come up. And that's something I forgot to mention because that's what comes up when you put it in there. Is in 2009, I was the I was fortunate to receive the Lowell Thomas Award or Medal for Exploration in 2000 for Journeys to the Edge and and Return, the Edge of Uncertainty. I think is how they put it. But anyway. And what does that medal or award represent, Jim? Because I'm not familiar with well, that. Well, yeah, it doesn't represent anything except for a recognition for the exploration that had been done as an explorer. And in my case, it was the fact that I, I re the recognition was for taking other people safely to the edge and bringing them back. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, back safely right so the reason based on the sort of the criteria they put out there that i qualified was because my expeditions had all been that had all been successful in one way or another and including no loss of human life and it turned out i'd taken a lot of explorers clubs members on trips around the world there were lots of those that went on and are still possibilities. Oh. Well, that's a very important accolade to say that with all of these trips that you've guided, that you've never had a loss of life. And I think that says something about your professionalism when you're out there. Well, thank you. Appreciate that. It's something that, you know, it's not only a goal, it's sort of a mandate. So. Well, well, that's important. Jim, this has been an absolute joy getting to spend time with you and an honor. You've accomplished a lot in life in a different world of what other people's accomplishments are. And, but it's certainly something to be recognized and appreciated and, and respected and valued. And I thank you for taking the time to, to share your journey. All right. I appreciate that. I'm going to add you one thing maybe you can use that is that one thing that my father, who was at first like not a big support of my mom, he was in terms of me going off and doing this. He said, you know, it started out as you're just a guide and a, and a ski instructor, and that's what people do for a while. And he said, but you actually turned it into a profession mm. and you, you, you are truly a professional at what you do. Um, yeah. I, and I respected that for what I I thought that was a pretty nice accolade from my dad. Went on a few things with me here and there, but he had the adage when it came to climbing, you know, you don't go higher than you're willing to jump from without a rope. Hmm. And his deal was he didn't like to jump off the first step. So uh, 
Yeah, that told you how much he liked climbing. But he did go on places. He did go places and explored lots, and we did quite a number of things. So That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, keep on exploring and keeping people safe, Jim. Thank you. You're welcome. And we'll see you at Training to be Balanced very soon for a workout. Well, you might not see me Friday, but you'll see me a week after. All right. Sounds uh, awesome. Take care. Thanks, Jim. Take Thanks. care. Thanks. You bet. Bye-bye. To learn more about Jim Williams and Explorados, visit the JacksonHoleConnection.com, episode number 191. Thank you, everybody, who helps keep this podcast on the air. Of course, the support of my wife, Laura, and my boys, Lewis and William, all of my teammates at the liquor store in Jackson Hole Marketplace. The support of everybody is phenomenal. My friends around the community who listen and tell me that they hear this podcast and my friends around the country and family who listen in. And of course, my editor and marketing director, Michael Morey. I appreciate you sharing your time with me today. And I really look forward to seeing you right back here for another episode of the Jackson Hole Connection. <laughs>